3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Exodus 3. Those graphics just look really great. Katie does a wonderful job on those things. I'm always impressed when I pull them up every week. Exodus 3. I am not a huge movie guy, personally. I like movies. Uh, We just don't, in our lives right now, have the time to watch very many movies um, with four kids. And uh, it seems like there's so many out there that it's hard to decide exactly what to watch. And so uh, we just end up talking about what we should watch and then never actually watch anything. But when it comes to movies, maybe some of you are movie buffs and enjoy them and know how they work. But uh, did you know that the character introduction, the introduction of the main character in a movie is a thing? Like, it's not just that this character ends up on the screen for the first time in some random way. Those that write the movies and produce them and direct them, actually, they carefully plot out how they're going to introduce you to the main character, which is fascinating. So the next time you're watching a movie, see if you can pick up on how they do this. And there are a number of ways that directors and writers properly introduce a main character in a movie to us. Sometimes there will be a short scene early on in the movie that will show the character in action, doing different things, and and those actions are consistent with what you'll see from that individual throughout the rest of the movie. And so they show you little snippets of them acting, and then those are the type of things or the type of person that 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 character will be later in the movie. Um, Another way that a character can be introduced is sometimes the camera will show different parts of the character's body. So they'll show their hands or show their feet or you know, their arms or whatever, and a silhouette maybe, and they'll, then they'll finally zoom in on the character's face. One of my favorite examples of this, and maybe you can remember this, is from the very first Indiana Jones movie. It's classic, right? I mean, you see Indiana, his hands holding an old tattered map. And that kind of shows you what's going to, his life as an archaeologist. And then you, you see his silhouette from behind. And it's his, you know, the back of his head, but then it's that classic hat on the top. And so you see that from behind. And then you see his hands grab the whip. And he disarms some guy with a gun with the whip. And then finally, after all of that, you sort of have this image of who this person's going to be. He steps out of the shadows and into the light, and you see the grizzled face of Harrison Ford with his five o'clock shadow there, and he comes into the light, and you know this is Indiana Jones, and it's really a a great and a fitting introduction to who he's going to be as a character. Well, introductions shape the way that we view characters in movies, of course, but they certainly do in scripture as well. And I think we saw this last week with the introduction of Moses to us. We saw different events in the life of Moses that would tell us who he's going to be, what type of person he will be. But one of the things that's been interesting so far in the book of Exodus is that we're several chapters in, and we really haven't had God introduced to us yet. If you think about it, so far in the first two chapters, we haven't read that much about God. I mean, yeah, the the Hebrew midwives feared him. We got a little snippet there. And yes, at the end of chapter 2, it described God's perspective on the Israelites. And he saw them, he remembered them, he heard them, all of that. 
But we really haven't seen him act yet. We haven't seen him speak. We haven't heard him speak yet. I mean, he's there. It's quite clear that Yahweh God is there. And he's overseeing the events that are happening. But we really haven't been introduced to him. We don't know a ton about what he is like yet. And that's where this section of the book of Exodus comes in. Chapter 3 and verse 1 all the way to chapter 4 and verse 17. We're going to be introduced to God, the God of the Israelites, the God of the whole world. Now, there's no doubt that this passage is the burning bush passage. It's the commission of Moses. It's Moses's call to go to Egypt and to represent the Lord and to rescue the people out of Egypt. But really, that's sort of a a backseat to the introduction that we have to God here. God's going to introduce himself to Moses. This passage is all about his character and how he's going to accomplish these things, even through Moses. And so he's going to introduce himself to Moses, and then Moses is going to mediate that knowledge of God to Israel. He's going to bring that to them so that they too can know this God and what he's like. And so this, state, this introduction here is going to set the stage for what we read about God in the rest of the book of Exodus. You can't really make sense of the rest of the book without this scene that, and this conversation that we're going to see here. So with all of that in mind, this Sunday and next Sunday, it's going to take us two weeks to get through this, um, we're going to see four foundational revelations of God's character that introduce us to him, that help us to know him. Four foundational revelations of God's character that introduce him to us. Four foundation, foundational revelations of God's character. So the first one of these is found in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and it's that he is the holy God of the patriarchs. Now, we've talked several times in the first couple of chapters of Exodus about how this book is a continuation of the story of Genesis. We've seen that quite clearly. There's tons of connections back to the story of Genesis. And God's revelation of himself is consistent with what we learn about God in Genesis. But beginning here, this revelation of who God is is going to grow and expand. And we're going to get new insights. It's not that God has changed but it's pro- his revelation of himself is progressive. And so now we're going to learn more about who he is that we didn't pick up as clearly in the book of Genesis. And so as we jump into chapter 3, last time in chapter 2, we found Moses, who is one of the main characters, if not the main character so far in the book, living outside of Egypt, away from the Israelites, and he's living in Midian. And he's gotten married. Look at chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, we're not given a time frame here in the book of Exodus as to how old Moses was when these events happened, but... If you, you don't have to turn there, but if you go and look at Acts chapter 7, that's Stephen, the martyr Stephen, his message, he actually tells us when he's preaching the time frame for all of this. And so we can sort of import that time frame back here. When Moses fled Egypt, Stephen says that he was 40 years old. And so 
He gets married here and ends up in Midian at age 40. And then Stephen tells us that 40 more years pass until this incident at the burning bush here in chapter 3. So look at verse 1. Now, after those 40 years, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So clearly here, it's interesting, Moses has sort of moved on from being an Egyptian or anything identifying him as an Egyptian because he's taken up the, the job of a shepherd. And if you remember, Egyptians would never work as a shepherd. Shepherds were sort of detestable to them. And so Moses has rejected his life as an Egyptian. Maybe now he thinks of himself more as an Israelite, exiled away from his people. But regardless, he's working as a shepherd and while he's working as a shepherd, this oversight of the sheep would have taken him on you know, several days or several weeks journey to find land for these animals to graze in. And so he strays quite a bit west of where his father-in-law lives. He's working for him. And he ends up at Mount Horeb, which we find out here at the end of this verse is called the Mountain of God. Well, that's interesting. Why is it called the Mountain of God? Well, it's not as if God has his permanent dwelling place here. It's not as if in all the places in all the world, this happens to be where God lives and you can find him here. But what this does is it causes us to think ahead in the book of Exodus to things that will happen at this same mountain later on in Exodus. And what's going to happen later on at this mountain Mount Sinai in the wilderness, the same mountain, is that God is going to reveal himself to the people of Israel. He's going to give them the law, and he's going to reveal himself to Moses in chapters 32 to 34. Remember, Moses asked God if he can see him to show him his glory, and God reveals his character to Moses. And so we should read this whole section at the mountain of God as a revelation of God's character, as, a, as an introduction to who he is. That's what's happening here. Look at verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, I don't know what you think of when you read that an angel of the Lord or the angel of the Lord appeared here. I don't know if you think of a, uh, some sort of pre-incarnate uh, revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's been a ton of discussion of what exactly this is, the angel of the Lord, or who this is. And the reality is that here, this word, Hebrew word that's translated angel, simply means messenger. It does not have to mean what we typically think of as an angel, like Gabriel or Michael. It can mean that, but it certainly does not have to mean that. And so what you have here is you have a flame of fire that is a messenger of the Lord or is a representative of God's presence. This is not the full totality of God's presence because Moses could never stand and look at God's full presence. The glory would be overwhelming. But you can think of this just like you would think of the pillar of fire later in Exodus. You could see it. You could look at it. It's not the full reality of God's presence, but it's a messenger of him. It's a representative indicating that, that he's there with Moses. Now, obviously, this is a very curious sight for him to see, this bush that doesn't burn up. 
And so he, he goes to look at it. Verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Now, the fact that God calls his name twice here indicates that God has affection for him. It's not accidental that God says, Moses, Moses. If you remember in the book of Samuel, he calls out to Samuel twice as well. It's a term of endearment. It's a way of indicating affection to him. And so Moses responds rather politely, here I am, which is an appropriate thing to say. And now God begins to reveal himself to Moses. And as he does this, initially, we find out two key things about God. First of all, in verse 5, he tells Moses to remove his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Verse 5, then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In this time period and in this culture, taking your shoes off in someone's presence was a sign of respect and it was a sign of humility. You understood this person's significance and their role and their importance. And humility is necessary here because Moses finds out quickly that God, this God who he's interacting with, is holy. He's so holy, in fact, that the ground around his messenger becomes holy. His holiness spreads out away from him and changes the ground that is around him to be holy as well. And so Moses can't even step on that ground with his shoes on. Now, we take this word holy for granted, I think, because we hear it so often. We think of this as a characteristic of God. But one of the things that I found fascinating about this, this revelation of God to Moses that he is holy, is that this word, this Hebrew word for holy, is really not used in Scripture up to this point. I mean, there are a few instances of it in Genesis. And of course, you have the Sabbath day being set aside in Genesis 2-3 as holy. But this word is not spoken of ever, if maybe rarely, regarding God. And so this is a unique revelation of God here. It's not to say that God hasn't been holy up to this point. Of course he has. But he has not revealed himself to his people yet as holy in the same way that he will now. The word holy means unique. It means set apart, different. He's one of a kind. And proximity to this God requires that people and objects become holy as well. In order to be in his presence, you too have to be unique and you have to be set apart. And God reveals himself as holy initially here, but then as you get into the later chapters of the book of Exodus, and then as you really get into Leviticus, I mean, that's the entire theme of the book of Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. If you are going to be in my presence, it is required of you that you be holy. And as you can see here, sinful people cannot casually come into God's presence. Moses can't just waltz into God's presence flippantly because the ground around him is holy. And so Moses has to show a sign of humility and of respect for that holiness. 
And there are tons of applications of this for our lives, but this is an important lesson that we better not forget in our dealings with God. God defines himself as holy. This is who he is. And you and I don't get to decide what God is like. We don't get to adjust his character based on what we would like him to be like. We don't get to choose. We approach him on his terms and not ours. We don't get to manipulate. We don't get to say things like, well, God is love and he's gracious and so I can do whatever I want. That is true. He is loving and he is gracious, but it is a holy love and it is a holy grace that does not leave us in our sin but sets us apart and sanctifies us so that we can dwell in his presence. And this God who is revealing his holiness to Moses, this is the same God that has always been. This is the same God of the patriarchs. This is the second part of how he initially reveals himself here. Look at verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses here finds out that he is speaking with the same God who made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. He's the creator God, he's the one who made the world, and he is the holy God, the one who sets the terms, the one who is unique and the one who requires sinful people to be holy, to come into his presence. And it's this same God who Moses meets here who is now going to act on Israel's behalf. This holy creator God, the covenant God of of Moses' ancestors, is the one who is going to act. And it's through his actions that Moses and the children of Israel, and then by extension us, we will learn his character. It's through his actions in the rest of the book of Exodus that we will find out who he is. And that's our second foundational revelation. And this is going to take the rest of chapter 3 to try to make clear to you. But this is a key point regarding our understanding of God and regarding how we read the rest of the book of Exodus. His actions showcase his character. So you've got God saying, I am the holy God of the patriarchs as an introduction to Moses, of himself to Moses. And now the rest of chapter three is gonna show us how we read the rest of the book of Exodus. God's actions will showcase his character to us. Now up until this point in the book, we've not heard directly from God. I mean, these words to Moses are the first words that we have in this book of God speaking. I mean, we know that God is behind the scenes. He sees, he hears, he he remembers, he knows Israel's bitter affliction. But Moses doesn't know any of that at this point, right? I mean, Moses has been living for 40 years in Midian after he got kicked out of Egypt for trying to help the people of Israel. He has no idea really who God is or what he's doing at this point. And now God is going to make that knowledge, his knowledge of the situation, clear to Moses. And he's going to promise to help. This is what he does in verses 7 through 10. Let me read this to you. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. 
I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, there's a lot here, but let me just note a couple of important points in what God says and how he sets the stage here for Moses and for what he's going to do. First of all, notice in verse 7, And then again in verse 10, that God calls the children of Israel my people. I mean, he clearly is identifying with them in their pain and suffering. He considers them his, and he is going to do something about the situation of his special people. The next thing I want you to notice is in verse 8. It says that I have come down to deliver them. Now, when you read that, God coming down, don't think of this as some sort of spatial reality where God lives up in the sky above the clouds. You can't see him because he's behind the clouds. And now he's going to sort of come down to earth and do his thing. This is an idiom. I mean, it's a way of saying that God is going to help, that he's ready and he's eager, that he's with Moses and he's going to act. He's present to help. And then the last thing I want you to notice about this section here, 7 through 10, is that as God is ready to help, he's going to help by doing good to the nation of Israel. I mean, this is astounding in verse 8. We looked at this a few weeks ago, but look again. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey right? God is going to do good to them. That's his plan. That's his goal. Everything that happens for the rest of the book has to be read through this lens. God is not trying to make things difficult for them. He's actually wanting to do good to them. It's his goal. So this is a God who loves and cares for his people. He calls them my people, and he wants to bless them. He wants to do good to them. He wants to provide for them in abundance. And as you'll see later, ultimately, he wants them to know him. Now, these words here that God speaks to Moses, this begins this sort of back and forth conversation, right? Um, If you've ever read this section before, it's almost comical as you read through it, how there's this back and forth between Moses and the Lord. And this back and forth begins here, and it goes all the way to the end of our section that we're going to study this week and next, chapter 4 and verse 17. And so Moses responds to this initial plan that God's going to save his people, do them good, and he's going to use Moses to do it by sending him to Pharaoh, which if you know anything about the first couple chapters of Exodus is really an interesting thought for Moses to get sent back to Pharaoh. But now Moses responds in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? This is a legitimate question, right? 
I mean, I don't think at this point Moses is just trying to get out of it. I mean, he's tried to help before. Remember in chapter 2, he killed that Egyptian. And when he tried to help before, it got him kicked out of the country. And now he's been living as an exile, as a foreigner, in a foreign land for the last 40 years. I mean, he even named his son this name to indicate that he's a sojourner in a foreign land. I mean, this is probably not the resume that gets you chosen as a deliverer, right? This is not the type of guy you would think would be high on the list of going in and confronting Pharaoh. I mean, how could Moses confront Pharaoh? And how could he expect Israel to follow him? I mean, the last time he was in Egypt, he had Israelites annoyed with him and mad at him for what he'd done. And then he flees. All of these are legit questions. And God responds in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God's not necessarily concerned here about Moses' lack of qualifications or his failures in the past. And he's not concerned about those things. He doesn't even focus on those things because of the promise that he gives here to Moses. Look, the bottom line, Moses, is I'm going to be with you. That's the most important piece of information that Moses needs to have. And he tells Moses, look, you're going to have to trust me throughout this process. That's the whole point of the sign here. I mean, how can this actually be a sign that God is going to bring them out of Egypt? Because the sign will only be realized when he's already brought them out of Egypt and they come back to this mountain. And so the point is, look, I'm going to do this. You're just going to have to trust me throughout this. I'm going to be with you. Your response is to trust me. And once I've done this work, I'll confirm it to you. Now, after this first question and after God's follow-up, Moses follows up with another question in verse 13. Look there. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, this question maybe is one of the most important questions in the entire book of Exodus. This gets to the core of God's revelation of himself. Now, this is a legitimate question as well. It's an honest inquiry that Moses is making. Why? Well, several reasons are possible. I mean, Israel may want to know if Moses has been sent by the right God. They lived in a polytheistic culture. There were tons of gods in Egypt. In fact, every surrounding nation had multiple gods that they worshipped. And so this guy shows up on the scene and says, God sent me to you. Which God? Who is it? How do we know it's the right one, the God of our fathers? And beyond that, just for Moses as an individual, he probably wants to know, who are you? I mean, yeah, he's heard about the God of the patriarchs probably when he was young with his mother. He knew the Israelites worshipped a God. But he probably wants to know, how can I trust you? How do I know who you are and that you're actually going to follow through on what you say to me? 
And so he asks this question, and this sets us up for a key moment of revelation regarding God. Now, when you get to this, verse 14 and God's answer here, what we typically do as we read this is we focus on only God's words in verse 14. The beginning of verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And so what we tend to do as we read this, and maybe you've done this before, is we try to understand what God means by that phrase, I am who I am. But I want you to notice something about God's response. That's not all that God says to Moses. In fact, his response comes in three parts. Look, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am, part one. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then the third part, God also said. Now in Hebrew, it's kind of clunky, the language here. Because it keeps saying, God said, God said. Why didn't he just smash it all together, right? God said all these things, but he's, he's dividing them up to help us see that God's answer concerning his name is more than just this phrase, I am who I am. Verse 15, I didn't end up reading that. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so I want to help you, and you're going to have to track with me through this this morning. I want to help you understand what God is telling Moses about himself here. And this is a key part of his character. And this will help us to read the rest of the book of Exodus. And this is going to solidify this second foundational revelation of God's character, that he reveals himself through his actions. First of all, first part of this, he does say those famous words. They're not unimportant. They're very important. I am who I am. Of all the many possibilities of what this could mean and what people have discussed concerning these words, it seems to me most likely that this is actually pretty straightforward. God will be who he is. I think that's what God's telling Moses here. I am going to be who I am. I will act consistent with my nature, with my character. Now, admittedly, that's a little vague, right? Okay, <laughs> what do you mean by that? And I think that's vague on purpose, God will act consistent with his character. And in Hebrew, this is a little bit vague. And so I, the natural follow-up question is, well, then what is your character? Who are you? What are you like? What sort of God are you? I mean, if you're going to act consistent with your character, I don't know what your character's like. So what is it? And that's why it's so important to understand the second and the third part of God's answers here. The next part in verse 14, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so part of the answer here to who God is, is that he's the God who is sending Moses to the people. He's sending Moses to them to deliver them. Now look at the third part of the answer in verse 15. This is the same pattern as verse 14. Look, verse 14 again, it says, I am has sent me to you. 
Then verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. It's the same thing. It's the same phrase. It's just that I am has been changed to the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Same phrase, same God has sent me to you. That's what Moses is to tell them. The Lord has been substituted for I am. And I think God is affirming here that this is exactly this, the vagueness of this and the fact that God is revealing himself here to Moses in this way is exactly how we're supposed to understand this. Look at the end of verse 15. This is my name forever. Thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Here's the point. God is saying, I'm the same God I've always been. This this new name that I'm giving to you, I am, is the same God of the patriarchs. I'm the same God who made a covenant with your fathers. And you say, well, that's great. But the question still stands. What sort of God is the God of the patriarchs? Who are you? And this is where the vagueness of all of this compels us to read forward into the book of Exodus. You see, we're not supposed to be able to figure out the character and the nature of God by parsing the words of verse 14, this name given us here. We're not supposed to find out everything we need to know about God by understanding exactly what God means when he says, I am who I am. All we know from that is he's consistent with his nature. But in order to really know him and to experience his nature and character, we have to watch him in action. He's the same God he's always been. He acts consistent with his nature. Well, what is his nature? How do we find it out? He's going to tell us in verses 16 to 22. This is part of his answer as well. This is where we really start to understand how we know God. And I think this is the major part of the answer to Moses' question in verse 13. So what does he say to Moses? I'm going to read it in a second, but to summarize it, what he says to Moses is basically, here's what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Exodus, up to chapter 14 or 15. I mean, if you read this, that's what he says, right? Look at verse 16. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, the plagues. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And so this is the answer of who God is. And it's saying you're going to find out the nature of God, who he is, by what he does in rescuing the people from Egypt. That's going to tell you 
what you need to know about God's character. I want to show this to you, prove it to you from the theme of the book. Flip over to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6. We looked at this a few weeks ago as the kind of the thematic description of uh, summarizing the book of Exodus. God's words to Moses here, Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8 is what we're going to read. But, but I want you to notice how this begins. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Does that sound familiar? It's the same thing he told Moses in chapter 3. And look how it ends in verse 8. I am the Lord, right? And so he, he defines his name, which is the same name he gave to Moses in chapter 3. And we're meant to read what comes in between those givings of his name as his character, as what he's like. And so what is he like? Verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And so what we're finding out here is that it is through God's rescue of the people of Israel from Egypt that they will come to know him. It's not through memorizing the name, I am who I am. It's not even through understanding all the ins and outs in Hebrew of how that's constructed and what that means. When God says, I am the Lord, he defines himself here and will define himself through his actions throughout the rest of the book. And so to know the Lord, and this is where this comes to you and I, to know the Lord, which John 17 tells us is eternal life, to know the Lord is more than to be able to answer the question that Moses poses in verse 13. I mean, bring this over into your daily life, to any of your relationships with any other people in this room. For me to know any of you is to understand you. It's to see you in action. It's not just to read a list of adjectives that describe you. It's to watch you interact with other people, to talk to you, to experience your approach to life, to know how you're going to react in the future to something based on what you've done in the past, to know what a conversation with you is like. To know another person is to grasp what you're like as much by experience as by definition. And that's not to discount the definition. It's important. True knowledge of God requires basic definitions like we have in verse 14. But true knowledge of God doesn't stop there. It starts there and it has to begin there. And if you think it doesn't matter, then you're not on the pathway to knowledge of God. It starts there knowing that God is consistent with his nature. What is his nature like? Now you can experience this God as you read this book as you see what he does. And that was true of the Israelites and true of Moses. As, God, as Moses saw God interact and respond and act 
and bring the plagues and deliver the people. Now, by experience, he knows God. And he's come into a relationship with him. And so what does this mean for you and I? True knowledge of God can only be found as you and I are delivered by God, as we experience new life and new birth through the Holy Spirit. You can only know God truly as we meet with God, personally, corporately, as we pray to God, as we immerse ourselves in this book, which is God's revelation of himself. The rest of the book of Exodus is going to give us opportunities to watch the Lord God in action to see him deliver the children of Israel and to grow in our knowledge of who he is by how he acts. And so I'm looking forward to that journey together to know the one who is consistent with his nature, the I am who I am, God, the holy God of the patriarchs that we have the opportunity now to know through his revelation of of himself in this book to us. So I'm excited to do that together. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this passage. I pray that you would help us as we seek to know you. Um, This is not something that is just a list of characteristics or definitions, but this is a, a walking with you knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. It's a knowledge that we will gain as we spend time with you over the next few months in this book. So please help us in this endeavor. Help us in our personal lives to have the same approach to the knowledge of you. Because knowing you is the ultimate good for us, Lord. And it brings you honor and glory. Thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for all you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.